Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents... In 1989, director Rob Reiner and stars Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan gave the world a fun formula that would set the genre of rom-com for years to come. In 2019, we return to Ireland for the first time in season two. The movie is When Harry Met Sally. The whiskey is Redbreast Lestau. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1989 romantic comedy classic, When Harry Met Sally. Now, Brad, every week I ask you if you had seen this movie before, but I think I tipped us off a little bit last week when I said, I have actually never seen When Harry Met Sally. So you might actually have a leg up on me this week. Yeah, I honestly don't, because I had never seen it before. (laughs) (laughs) But I also love that you said that you might have tipped us off, that you hadn't seen it. Yeah. And I just want to inform you that 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 would mean that you might have indicated that you hadn't seen it, (laughs) but you flat out said last week, I haven't seen this movie. That's more than tipping us off. I explicitly stated that I had not seen this movie. (laughs) But I'm really excited. So the way that we had actually set up the schedule for season two, we had initially had a different movie slotted in for this week. We were going to be talking about Woody Allen's movie, Annie Hall. And for a couple of reasons, number one being the whole Woody Allen controversy right now, and number two being the fact that of Woody Allen's movies, I just, I don't care for Annie Hall that much. I thought maybe this was a good time to try to sub something else in, and it gave me a reason to watch a different romantic comedy, one that's kind of in the same vein as Annie Hall, but it checked a movie off my list, and I'm really, really happy that we put When Harry Met Sally into the list. Yeah, I 100% agree with you, Bob. I had heard of this movie and obviously had never watched it, but it did sound like one of those classics of like, oh yeah, When Harry Met Sally, I should probably watch that movie. And I was really blown away by this movie. It was it was very impressive, but I'm, I, I am glad that we got it here on the list. And honestly, I feel like the podcast as a whole has not brought Film and Whiskey Nation many reviews on rom-coms. So I'm really excited to jump into this genre. Yeah, I am too. So I guess, Brad, why don't we kick it off right here at the beginning with Brad Explains, and then let's just take it wherever we want to go. Because like you said, we haven't really talked a lot about rom-coms. I think we can talk a lot about the script of this movie, uh, the direction, and the way that Rob Reiner does sort of visual punchlines, and the performances. But before we get to that, Brad, can you explain the movie When Harry Met Sally? Yeah, Harry's a jerk, Sally's a perfectionist, they fall in love, the end. Wow. Wow. I'm pretty sure that was four seconds long. Yeah, I, I'm impressed. I, that... they, they do fall in love. But what I love about this movie <laughs> is that it happens over such a long period of time. And the whole like premise of the film is that they hate each other for a long period of time until they don't. 
And I think the course of the movie, it takes place over what, like 10, 12 years, something like that? I think it's about 12 years altogether. Yeah. And I, I like that this movie goes for the long play. You know, it starts when they're in college. But the fact that it's about two people who go through the ins and outs of life, you know, he goes through a divorce, she goes through a really tough long term relationship. Something about this movie just feels a little bit more grown up and mature than most romantic comedies do. Yeah, I think that one of the advantages that TV shows have over movies is the raw film time that you get the consumer to sit in front of your product. So like TV shows, you might sit in front of, you know, watching The Office for, you know, hundreds of hours over a rewatch over a rewatch. Whereas like I might watch When Harry Met Sally two more times in my life, which means I will have spent about six hours watching this movie. And so with that, it can be really difficult for movies to help you fall in love with characters. Whereas TV shows, you have hundreds of episodes to, you know, dive into who a character is. And so what I think that When Harry Met Sally gives you is an opportunity to see people change over years worth of time. And it helps you fall in love with the characters because you see that they've changed from who they used to be to who they are now. And it kind of gives you a grasp on who they are. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, Brad, is that both of these lead performances, I think, are just phenomenal. But you also see their personalities change over the years with romantic comedies. So often you get like a cliche or a trope. And especially with the female characters, they play the exact same notes all through the movie. And I especially was blown away by Meg Ryan in this film because she does go from being this sort of ambitious, idealistic, uptight person uh, in the early going of the movie to a much more laid back Um, And in some ways, cynical and kind of jaded person after she has her big breakup. But you watch the progression of how all of their rough edges kind of get sanded off. And I think that's what really draws me to this film and what makes me think that it is a sort of more mature movie. Yeah. And the other beautiful thing about them moving through time for such, you know, long period is that you don't have to suspend your disbelief to think, oh, you know, these people couldn't have fallen in love over a three-day period. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with rom-coms is that most human beings, when they watch movies like that, they understand you don't fall in love with somebody over a two- or three-day period. You know, that's not to say it's never happened, but it's hard when you watch rom-coms to think, oh, yeah, this could represent real life. Whereas with When Harry Met Sally... It's believable. I could see them falling in love over a 10 to 12 year period of kind of being friends, kind of not liking each other, slowly finding, you know, things that they both like and enjoy. And it's a realistic depiction of falling in love. And I really like that. So why don't we just kind of go through the movie as it progresses? This movie starts off with opening titles that really are reminiscent of a Woody Allen movie. And Brad, I don't know how many Woody Allen films you've seen, but they kind of always start with this black screen stylized script. They go through the whole credits before the movie starts. This movie does kind of owe a debt to the comedy of Woody Allen, because even the way Billy Crystal plays his character, it's a little bit more of a regular guy than Woody Allen is, but it's still sort of this neurotic, sex-obsessed nebbish Jewish guy. So like it's definitely in the vein of a Woody Allen. And I really liked that they acknowledged it, that they leaned into it from the beginning. Brad, have you ever seen a Woody Allen film? So I'm literally looking on my phone right now. I'm scrolling through Woody Allen movies. I have never seen a Woody Allen film. Yeah. I mean, I do think we'll get to some eventually on the podcast. I don't know that this is like 
this is the moment for the podcast to be addressing everything that's going on with Woody Allen right now. I'm really glad we didn't do Annie Hall. But for now, we'll just say this movie is indebted to his style of comedy. And so moving on from that, what I really liked about the way the movie starts is like, you get the title When Harry Met Sally, and then the first shot of the movie is Billy Crystal making out with someone that's not Sally. Yeah, I really loved that because it sets the terms for the relationship from the very start of the movie. The opening scene of any movie is the director's first chance to tell the audience, you know, what they need to know about this movie. And so from the very get-go, you know that this is going to be an adversarial relationship between Harry and Sally. And I, I also really enjoy later in the movie when they run into each other again, I think for the first time, it's about five years later, and they're in this airport, and she goes, I can't even remember that girlfriend's name. And then she you know, tries to make him feel bad for not remembering the girlfriend's name. It's just this fun, playful, you know, kind of antagonistic relationship that they have that they continue throughout the movie. And they set it up from the very opening scene. They really do. And I just really briefly, I want to comment on this because I want to get your thoughts, Brad. I think for the most part, they do a really good job of making Billy Crystal look younger than he is throughout the movie. But in that very opening shot, it's a close up of him kissing his girlfriend and he's supposed to be like 21, 22. And you can see all the gray hairs in his hair. And I think that was the only shot of the movie where I was like, wow, this is uh, they did a pretty bad job here because for the rest of the film, I didn't notice it so much. Hey, man, life at the University of Chicago was rough. All right. <laughs> he, he really studied hard to be a lawyer or whatever he ended up doing. I have just as much of a dark side as the next person. Oh, really? When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark side. That doesn't mean you're deep or anything. I mean, yes, basically, I'm a happy person. So am I. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. Of course not. You're too busy being happy. You ever think about death? Yes. Sure you do. A fleeting thought that drifts in and out of the transom of your mind. I spend hours. I spend days. And you think this makes you a better person? comes down, I'm going to be prepared, and you're not. That's all I'm saying. In the meantime, you're going to ruin your whole life waiting for it. I want to get your thoughts on this, Brad, and I think it's time for us to talk a little bit about the, the lead performances, and we've touched on Meg Ryan. What do you think of the idea of Billy Crystal sex symbol in this movie? I really struggled with that, because if I'm completely honest... I don't think Billy Crystal is an incredibly attractive man. Mm -hmm. And so to see him as a sex symbol, as like he's just sleeping with women all around, all over the place, I just kind of, I, I, I kind of went, huh, that's interesting. What's really funny is that I think I had the opposite reaction because I'm, I'm really used to Billy Crystal Oscar host or Billy Crystal Mike Wazowski, you know? Yeah. And I've never seen him lean more into kind of the more charming side, the more sensitive side that he does in this movie. I think the way he looks at Meg Ryan, the way that he has this really wry smile, it's not so much the cynical Billy Crystal that I'm used to cracking, you know, like making wisecracking jokes at the Oscars. It was a much more playful. And I actually I thought it really worked. And I, like halfway through the movie, I was like, yeah, I could see this. I could see how women would find this man attractive. Yeah, I mean, you are kind of used to Billy Crystal with that, you know, hey, you've never had it so good. 
<laughs> type of humor just, you know, coming out all the time. Sure. And you do get a different side of him in this movie that I really do enjoy. He he kind of commands the camera whenever he's on screen. He he has this magnetism that I guess, yeah, maybe you're right, Bob. I, I can understand why he would be so attractive to women, you know, in the 1980s. And yet that's not really like something that was a trademark of the Billy Crystal brand. I think this movie really went out of its way to make him be more appealing in that way. You know, I don't think if you asked like the typical woman on the street in the 1980s, tell me what you think of Billy Crystal, that that this would be something that they would think <laughs> of. Because, you know, just a couple of years before this movie, he's in The Princess Bride and he's got this horribly disfigured old man makeup on. <laughs> he's he's the guy that slips in and out of character. And so I think to to hang a romantic comedy on the believability of Billy Crystal as your romantic lead was kind of a gutsy move, but I really think it paid off. Well, and one of the reasons he did so well is because I think that the script was written beautifully for him. At the very start of the movie, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie do it so well where they portray that idealistic young college student who has it all figured out. You know, he he's very cocky and he's self-assured and he knows all the answers to life and death. and And he just comes across as this self-assured young man who knows everything he needs from the world. But five years later and five years after that, you begin to understand that he's grown, he's changed. And the script was written extremely well to show those changes and to give him depth as a character. I completely agree. And the script was written by Nora Ephron, who would go on to be, you know, the preeminent writer and sometime director of romantic comedies all through the 1990s and 2000s. And I think this might be her best script because it was so rooted in real life. You know, she had had this conversation about can men and women really, truly be friends without there being that sexual tension underlying it. And the movie came out of that. But what I love about the script is that it plays so strongly into the strengths of its two leads. Meg Ryan, in that opening scene where she's driving him in the car, she is just nailing that sort of uptight and yet still adorable character. And then you've got him looking like a schlub sitting next to her in the car, spitting his grape into the window because he thinks it's rolled down and just generally being a, a cocky slob. And to have those two things right next to each other, I think it could come across a little too like on the nose. But the way they played in this movie, it's just perfect. And I had a stupid grin on my face for like the whole film just because of how clever, how witty and how perfect the script was. Honestly, that those early shots of Sally kind of reminded me of like Anne Margaret from Bye Bye Birdie. Just kind of that young, innocent blonde that, you know, knows what she wants in life. But I, for some reason, that portrayal just kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, that's really interesting because I actually wrote down a comparison, too. And I, I was really blown away by how much Meg Ryan reminded me of Ginger Rogers in this movie. And we haven't watched a Fred and Ginger movie on this podcast. And we might someday. But particularly for me, it's, it's the way she used her eyes. Um, the way she really stood up to Billy Crystal, it reminded me so much of the way that Ginger Rogers would interact with Fred Astaire's characters in their movies. And I think that Meg Ryan kind of has this reputation of only being a romantic comedy actress, as if like that's something to be looked down upon. But throughout this movie, I just thought that this performance was just fantastic because she ages herself from really young and idealistic and ambitious to older and jaded and hurt but she hits all of those notes so beautifully. 
she delivers an amazing performance in this movie. And I, I think really the reason this movie does so well is because their performances are so grounded. I, I think a problem that a lot of rom-coms face is that the characters are over the top and kind of absurd, you know what I mean? And they're just mm-hmm. they're just kind of ridiculous people that wouldn't exist in the real world. Whereas Harry and Sally are real people, they have real friends who are normal and they, you know, they live normal lives. They might not live a normal life that somebody in the Midwest would understand of a, you know, a New Yorker, but it, it was believable and they both delivered those performances perfectly. I truly was blown away by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan in this movie. And I think if I had to pick one that I was even more impressed by, for me, it would be Meg Ryan, just because she's not, she wasn't a professional comedian the way Billy Crystal is. And so when Nora Ephron gives Sally so many punchlines to finish scenes, you really have to know your, A, your comedic timing, and B, you have to know how to deliver a punchline. And Meg Ryan always delivers them really straight. And I think that's what makes them really funny. But like in particular, in that early scene where they go to the diner together and they're talking about how Meg Ryan broke up with her boyfriend and they talk about the days of the week underwear. Yeah. And how her boyfriend didn't believe that they didn't make Sunday. And Billy Crystal asks her, why don't they make Sunday? And the punchline is because of God. <laughs> and it's the way that her face is resting when she delivers that line. I laughed out loud. And and I was just so shocked at how good of a comedian Meg Ryan was in this movie. She holds, she holds her own against one of cinema's best comedians of all time. And the other part about that scene that's so brilliant is that they juxtapose it with a scene later in the movie where they're at lunch again and they're talking about sex again. And instead of talking about how, you know... We don't we don't talk about sex on Sunday because of God. Meg Ryan goes into this, I don't know, 30 second long fake orgasm. That might have been the funniest part of the movie. But I, I love how they use that to show how her character has developed from being a young, naive college student to, you know, a woman in her early 30s. Yeah. And that's the most famous scene in the movie. And the, the crazy thing is, I've probably seen that scene 50 times just on TV in, you know, clips of funniest movie scenes, things like that. And in the context of the movie, even knowing it was coming and knowing the punchline of that scene and it being ingrained in pop culture, like it still works and it's still hilarious. And I think that's the mark of a perfectly written joke. Yeah. The funny thing about that was I've actually seen the clip of the old woman saying, I'll have what she's having. But I had never actually seen the clip of Meg Ryan faking an orgasm in the middle of a New York cafe. So it still hit me. And it's just so awkward. And it's absolutely perfect at that beat of the movie. It fits beautifully. So in one of the most famous castings ever in Hollywood, Rob Reiner actually cast his mom to deliver that line <laughs> at the end of that cafe scene. I did not know that. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a fun piece of trivia from When Harry Met Sally. So, Brad, before, before we move into the next part of our show, I want to ask you about uh, at the very beginning of the movie, even before we meet Harry and Sally, and then all throughout the movie, they insert these little sort of interstitials or these little skits almost of old people who have been married for a long time, kind of talking about how they got married. And some of them are funnier than others. And it kind of makes you wonder what the role of those are in the movie. And I think for a long time, I was trying to like correlate them to where 
Harry and Sally were in their relationship. I don't know if they necessarily do correlate. And I'm kind of wondering, what were your thoughts on those little interstitials? Did you think they worked? Did you think they were necessary? Did they fit in the movie? I thought that those little cute interludes with elderly couples telling, you know, the early parts of their love story were absolutely amazing. They were adorable. They were fun. And I thought that they really paced the movie well because you you would kind of hit the low beat where a scene would finish. And then you would have that small scene with an elderly couple just kind of giggling about their, their love story. And then it would slowly move into a new era in the relationship between Harry and Sally. And I thought that they worked brilliantly as a pacing piece to help pace the movie. Now, I will say... For a little while, I was like, oh, I wonder if these are people, you know, from the movie that are in relationships and we're seeing them at the end of the relationship and we're going to see Harry and Sally at the end of the movie really old. Um, So there were there was a little confusion with them. But after the third or fourth one, I think you begin to realize that these are just other examples of people with crazy stories on how they fell in love. And I think that it worked perfectly to illustrate the entire message of this movie. What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. What if they don't want to have sex with you? Doesn't matter. Because the sex thing is already out there, so the friendship is ultimately doomed, and that is the end of the story. Well, I guess we're not going to be friends then. Guess not. I think last thing we should say before we move into our whiskey segment is that this movie really only has four characters in it. You know, there's some side periphery characters, but it's Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as Harry and Sally, and then Carrie Fisher as Sally's friend Marie, and Bruno Kirby as Harry's friend Jess. And the funniest thing in the movie, really, from a narrative standpoint, is the fact that those two end up getting together. But I loved the casting of the best friends. I think no romantic comedy is complete without a good best friend. But I didn't feel like these two best friends were like the cliches. And maybe they were the ones that inspired the cliches over the next, you know, 30 years. But these felt like real people. They I mean, they, they had their ridiculousness to them. But What was funny about the way they interacted with each other was Harry and Sally put up with the ridiculousness of their friends. And it really kind of hits home and it's relatable. What did you think of the two performances from Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher? I especially enjoyed Bruno Kirby. I thought that he was perfect as his best friend. He kind of pointed out the ridiculousness of Harry not wanting to be with Sally for such a long time. He's funny. He's interesting. He delivers one-liners really well. I I also enjoyed Carrie Fisher. I was just super confused, and this isn't really her fault. It's the script. The only point of the script that I had maybe some frustration with, and maybe I just don't understand the real world, do, do that many women really just sleep with married men? 
that they just keep talking about it over and over. I was so confused by why Carrie Fisher was sleeping with this married guy and continually expected him to leave his wife for her. Did did that cause any confusion for you, Bob? No, because I think it was exaggerated. You know what I mean? And I do think, especially in a place like New York, I have a suspicion that when Nora Ephron was writing this movie, that that character was based on somebody, whether it was herself or somebody she knew. I have no idea. But the writer knew someone that was like Carrie Fisher and then just kind of exaggerated it for comedic effect. I think the fact that we keep fast forwarding five years more into the future and every time we're fast forwarding into the future, it's still Carrie Fisher talking about married men, whether they're the same one or a different one. I think that's kind of the joke of her character until she finally does settle down. So I didn't, it didn't bother me so much as I saw it as a kind of a running gag. Yeah. That was the only part of the movie that felt kind of exaggerated and not realistic, but it it wasn't like a terrible thing. It didn't ruin the movie for me. I just thought it was curious. One of the things I love about both of those characters though, is that Rob Reiner puts them in the best place to do sort of physical punchlines or like cutaway punchlines. They don't really get as many funny lines, but I'm thinking of like with Carrie Fisher, when Harry and Sally meet in the bookstore for the first time in five years and Carrie Fisher's like slowly sneaking away out of frame. And then you see Sally say, oh, Harry, this is my friend Marie. And she's like halfway down the stairs, just like waving with her <laughs> arm up. Well, that was Marie. Right. It's a great little cutaway. And it's the same thing with Bruno Kirby when Harry and Jess are at the Giants game. And he's telling him all about how his wife's (laughs) cheating on him and they're going to get a divorce. And throughout that whole monologue, they keep standing up to do the wave. And it just like every few lines, it's a new punchline. That might have been my absolute favorite scene in the movie, because the way they tell that story, they do the wave like three times. And every single time, it's kind of like, Harry delivers, you know, the worst part of the story while they're doing the wave. And then while they're sitting there, he's kind of like, but it's not that bad. There's this and that and this and that. And then he delivers more bad news that's even worse than the first one while they're doing the wave. And it happens like three times. And it might be one of the most rhythmic, funniest jokes I've ever seen in a movie. It it was so funny. I love that you brought up the rhythm because Rob Reiner really does direct this movie with such a great rhythm and every he knows how every joke needs to end and he cuts the movie and he directs the movie to get you to that joke. And, you know, that might have been your favorite scene. My favorite scene in the whole movie still involved uh, Jess and Marie. And it's right after they go on that horrible disaster of a double date and they're walking home and the girls <laughs> split up and the guys split up and Jess wants to get with Marie. But uh, Harry tells him, you know, you need to wait a week. And the same thing happens with Sally and Marie. And then when they come together, it's an it's a really fast punchline because they're like, well, I don't want to walk anymore. And Marie's like, I don't either. Let's get a cab. And in the next five seconds, they hail a cab. They're in the cab. They're gone. And then they cut back to Harry and Sally standing alone on the street. And it was just such a perfectly constructed and well-directed punchline. Like, it works to a T. Yeah, that also was one of the funniest scenes in the movie. And like you said, it's it's such a brilliant comedic device because the entire attention of this movie is on Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. But even when the other characters are in the scene, Rob Reiner finds funny ways to get them off camera to return the attention to, you know, Harry and Sally. And it's just so brilliant. It's so well done. I can't say enough about Rob Reiner as a director. 
Well, Brad, I think this is a good time for us to take a break. What do you say we get into this red breast Lestal? Bob, I've had this poured for a while now. It smells absolutely phenomenal. I can't wait to get into this. All right, so today we are drinking Redbreast Lestau. Now, if you remember from last season, we had bought a Redbreast sampler that included their baseline 12-year, uh, the Lestau edition, and the 15-year. So after today, we've still got one Redbreast left to drink. This is the one that was included in the middle of the package. I don't know if that means that Redbreast considers it the middle of the three in terms of quality, but I'm really excited to get into this, Brad. You know, the 12-year was only a 90 proof, and I think our comment on that in our Amadeus episode was that it tasted a little thin. This one is 92 proof, so not a significant jump, but I'm expecting a little bit more flavor from this one. Yeah, I'm really impressed so far with the nose already. You know, I loved that first Redbreast that we had, and I, like you said, Bob, I'm really excited to get into this. So what distinguishes this one is that they use sherry casks to finish it. And we've had a few different kind of sherry cask finished whiskeys on the podcast. The the one that we liked the most being the Glen Moringi La Santa. So I guess we can kind of expect a similar flavor profile from this one. But the difference is scotch to Irish whiskey. And I'm really, really fascinated because when we drank the first red breast, we had picked up some notes on the nose and the taste that reminded us of scotch. It was a little more earthy uh, than the brighter Irish whiskeys that we'd had. And so I'm wondering how similar this is going to be to that Glen Morangy La Santa. Man, as I as I nose this, I'm really picking up a lot of bright notes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm getting some sort of like an orange zestiness. There, there's almost this sweetness to it, like a caramely toffee type of smell. I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, the first thing that I can smell on this is toffee, and then it's butterscotch. It's not quite caramel for me. And I think that's what's tipping me off that this might end up being a little more scotchy again, is that uh, it's got those toffee butterscotch notes. But I'm also picking up, again, something under that that's a little more herbal. I don't think it's mint. It's herbal. It's earthy. Um, it's just very different from what you'd get in like a Tullamore Dew. Yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and give this an eight and a half on nose. I really love what's going on in this whiskey so far. Yeah, I'm going to do the same eight and a half for me as well, which means it's time for us to give it a sip. Huh? Wow. Am I crazy? I feel like I have some sort of a nutty flavor going on here. Yep. Yep. Same thing. Nuttiness. It's really sweet up front, like really sweet immediately. And then I'm getting, Brad, I don't know how else to explain this, but like there's something as it goes across my tongue that the sweetness goes away, the nuttiness goes away, and it's almost like a vegetable kind of taste. It's a very interesting, like, it reminded me of like broccoli or something. It was really, really unexpected. And there's there's a lot of things to like about the taste in this, but I have this one really unpleasant note that's sticking out to me as well. That's interesting. I'm not picking up on that broccoli note because broccoli is one of the worst things God has ever created. <laughs> No, I'm honestly getting that nuttiness through the finish. I think this is a very complex and interesting whiskey. Like you're getting a lot of those sweet notes, but it's paired well with kind of a nuttiness. I am really impressed with this. Yeah, there's something for me, and I I hear you on the sweetness. The nuttiness goes through the finish. There's definitely that sort of waxiness to it, but there's just some herbal taste in this that's sticking out and it's actually lingering into the finish for me. 
and it's taking away from my enjoyment of it just a little bit. So I don't know if I could go higher than like a six and a half on the taste for this one. Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight on the taste. I am really impressed with the flavor profile on this. But what do you think about the finish, Bob? Well, like I said, the finish, those sweet notes kind of disappear. And they were mostly on the front of my palate. So what you're left with is this really lasting nuttiness. And then for me, it's that herbal taste. And I always hate when the one note that I like the least in the taste of a whiskey is the one that lingers on my tongue afterwards. But I can't escape whatever this flavor is. And it's really taking away from my overall enjoyment of it. This tastes very different from the La Santa. You don't have as many sherry, whiny notes as I thought you would on this. It's actually a much darker caramel paired with that earthiness. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. It's really good. It has some almost like peppery notes on the back end. It sits with you for a while. and, And it's pretty good. It's not quite as good as the first parts, but I like it. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and give it a six on the finish, which leads us to overall balance. Now, this is where we talk about nose, taste, and finish. Overall, I do think this is fairly well balanced, but something in the taste and the finish stuck out to me that I wasn't getting on the nose, and I think that really took my score down on the finish. So I'm just going to give it a seven on the overall balance. I'm actually going to give it a seven as well, Bob. I, I think that it is a little bit unbalanced. It is a complex whiskey. But I got a lot more on the nose than I did on the on the taste and the finish. All right. And that brings us to value. Now, this is where the original Red Brass 12 really suffered in our overall scores because it was just too expensive. It was in the $50 range, $60 range, I think. And we have not tried a ton of Irish whiskeys, but that one didn't seem to distinguish itself enough to merit that price tag. And this one, Brad, is actually even more expensive. In the state of Ohio, a bottle of Red Breast Lestal will cost you $69.99, so $70 price tag for this bottle of whiskey. And I do not think that I can justify spending that much on this whiskey ever. That is a hefty price tag for a good whiskey. Yeah. You know, I, I would give this a score as a good whiskey. I like it a lot. Sure. But $70? Wow. I would buy other things before I would buy this. Well, let me ask you this, Brad. I mean, if you had the, the option of buying Glenmorangie La Santa at 50 or this at 70 what's your choice? Come on, Bob. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like when <laughs> yeah. when there are other sherry cask finished whiskeys, probably even Irish whiskeys out there that are going to be at a lower price point and, you know, roughly equivalent in their overall quality. I just don't know how you could ever justify spending $70 on this. I'm actually going to give this a three then on value because I just really struggle to think that I would ever pay $70 For a bottle of this, that's a lot of money for an above average whiskey. Yeah, I agree. I was actually going to give it a two, but I think I will be generous and give it a three. Um, Just because if Irish whiskey is your favorite kind of whiskey, then I think this is unique enough and high end enough that if all you're looking for is Irish whiskey, sure, go out and buy your $70 bottle of Irish whiskey. I think for me, you know, Brad, I'm not as big of a fan of Irish as you are because I don't think that we've seen enough variety in them. That when you start getting into the higher price points, there's a lot of difference from the lower price points. This one, I do think there is some variety to it. I think it introduced something new into Irish that we haven't had yet. And so, sure, I'll give it a three on value. But for me, I'm never going to buy a bottle of this at retail price. Yeah. So for my overall score, then I was doing really well 
until the value category, which is I think we could say the same thing about the last red breast we drank. I came out to a 34 out of 50. Yeah, and I agree. I was just slightly less than you, Brad. I was at a 28 after four categories, so this was going to be a fairly high score for me. I came out to a 31, which brings our overall total to a 32.5 or a 65 out of 100. The price point on this really makes the whole thing suffer. I mean, if you have a really, you know, like a wealthy benefactor out there that's just pouring you free shots of this, it's a good whiskey. I really enjoyed it. But part of what we do on this podcast is suggest to people what they should buy with their hard-earned money. And I just can't give that a stamp of approval. I 100% agree. If you were asking me, Brad, do you approve of this whiskey? Would you recommend drinking it? I would say, yeah, it's a really good whiskey. Try it out. But if you're asking me, do you recommend me to go to the liquor store and buy it? I would I would not give this my stamp of approval. Well, there you have it. That has been Red Breast Lestau. I'm really sorry that we ended on such a down note. But, you know, I'm not sorry because I feel like we kind of took on the responsibility with this podcast, Brad, of suggesting things like we would suggest them to our friends. And I just don't think I would ever suggest to my friend, spend $70 on this bottle. Do you hear that, Film and Whiskey Nation? You all are Bob's friend. <laughs> you guys are my one friend. How how lucky we are to have Bob as our friend. Shut what up. A guy. Shut up, Brad. All right. So <laughs> let's get back into talking about when Harry met Sally. All right. So that was Red Breast Lestau. We are back talking about when Harry met Sally. But before we do that, we need to read some hot takes, Brad. Hot takes. Now, Hot Takes is our new segment where we find one-star reviews of these classic movies, and we decide whether or not they have any validity to them. Spoiler alert, they do not. (laughs) I'm really excited. This really has been my favorite part of our new season of Film and Whiskey. This is literally one of the funniest things, I think, that we can do. I, I love it, too, because, like, you know, both of us have given takes that the other one has disagreed with. But it's also really refreshing to read people who don't know how to string together a cogent thought and then realize, <laughs> like, yeah, I might disagree with Brad, but he's he's a very intelligent man. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Bob. I, I usually think the same thing about you. All right. So our first hot take today is from CC the Movie Man 1 at IMDb. <laughs> Bob, can I just tell you that more than the actual reviews, I think my favorite part is listening to you Say these people's usernames. CC the Movie Man one. He wrote this back in 2006, so maybe his uh, his opinion has changed. But his one star review is called "Pure Rob Reiner Meg Ryan Garbage." Oh man, the quote cute movie of the year. Quote a wonderful comic Valentine. These are just two of the ludicrous reviews made by famous critics who mostly raved about this film, which and I know this is unpopular to say, was a disgusting piece of crap. Wow. The whole film was nothing but sex talk. Hey, I don't mind some of that. It can be very funny. But the whole movie, (laughs) nothing but sex talk after sex talk? Come on. Well, two people that made this a very overrated film are director Rob Reiner and actress Meg Ryan. Reiner is a sleaze from way back, an extremist who has no clue what morals are, and I don't ever believe I have seen a good movie which starred Meg Ryan. She has a beautiful face, but that's it. Her movies are consistent. I'll give her that. They all stink. One star. That kind of sounded like a shut up and dribble. Yeah. 
<laughs> review. Yeah, I love how they you just... You have a pretty face, but stop acting. I love that they just had to get a little bit of objectification in there before they gave it one star. Yeah, yeah. That... <laughs> All right, CC the Movie Man, you are terrible at reviewing movies, and you should go home. All right, our second and final hot take for today comes from Paul Jeanette. This man just put his full name in the username. So, Paul Jeanette, his one-star review, a real disappointment. As this movie was, quote, advertised as being a very good and entertaining motion picture, I was really looking forward to it and looking forward to some good laughs. Unfortunately, the movie turned out to be a real dud, an unforgettable disappointment. Rob Reiner is an exceptionally good director, And Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are exceptional actors, but either the script or the timing was terrible. I laughed once at Rob Reiner's mother's line in the restaurant, and that was it. I didn't even smile through the rest of the movie, not to mention I never felt the urge to weep. If you won't make them laugh, first make them cry. Sadly, it was a real waste of 96 minutes. One star. One star. (laughs) Literally everything that we talked about in the first half of the episode... He just like tore apart and was like, no, terrible timing. Nothing made me laugh. No physical comedy that was funny. This was a terrible movie. I also love that like one of his criteria is it should have made me weep. Like just because I didn't find it funny means that it should have just gone the other way and at least made me cry. Yeah, I, that's an obvious critique. I don't know why we didn't think <laughs> of it already, Bob. So that has been this week's edition of Hot Takes. <laughs> All right. So, Brad. You know, we could go in a ton of different directions with this. We could talk about our favorite lines from the movie, but there are just so many good lines in this movie that I think we would just end up quoting the whole thing. I think maybe the best place to go is to talk about the sort of cultural impact that this had on the genre of romantic comedies. You even hinted at the beginning of the episode, Brad, that you could see the impact that this movie had and its fingerprints were all over the place. So I'm wondering, what about this movie reminded you of other romantic comedies there was something about this movie that you just see it echoed in so many different romantic comedies throughout the years whether it's through the narration of the main character talking about what's happening but there's something about that that as i was watching when harry met sally i was like oh yeah like you can see these narrative elements in later rom-coms the way that they use like a cutscene in the middle of it with no dialogue where you just see Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal struggling to purchase a Christmas tree together, you know, or do other such fun kind of friendly things together. You see that in so many different romantic comedies that you have to imagine that when Harry Met Sally influenced those in deep and meaningful ways. I'm sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here, tell me you love me, and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely. And it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? 
just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. Yeah, this is another one of those movies, like Alien last week, where I can see the movies that influenced it, and then I can also see the movies it influenced, because there's a lot of Annie Hall in this movie. And, you know, I'm thinking of the one scene where it's right after they first had sex, and they're trying to decide how to break the news to each other that they think it was a mistake, and all you hear is, like, their internal monologue. So you got narration in this movie where you normally wouldn't. That's something that Woody Allen did. But then I also think about... You know, we did 500 Days of Summer last season, and I was really shocked at how many things I thought 500 Days of Summer just kind of straight up stole from this movie. The uh, the old people talking to the camera, there's a whole montage in 500 Days of Summer of all the major characters talking about how they met their significant other, like directly into the camera. And it's done in the exact same way where they cut away from the main narrative and put it in as this little interlude. And then I was even thinking about the scene where they go into Sharper Image and they're singing into the karaoke machine. And it reminded me so much of the scene where Summer and Tom go to Ikea and they're picking out stuff at Ikea. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they lifted this scene directly out of when Harry met Sally. It was just so interesting to me. And I don't know if it really takes away my appreciation for 500 Days of Summer, but you can definitely see how this movie just has such a huge impact on the whole genre after it. Well, and as we look at this cultural impact, I think it's a good way to segue into, you know, what kind of a score would you give this movie, Bob? You know, you see that not only is it a brilliant movie, you know, in its own time, but I think it's aged well. It still made me laugh in 2019, 30 years later. So what kind of a score would you give this movie when you consider the cultural impact it's had and just what a great movie it was? So this movie is currently sitting at a 7.6 on IMDb. And I think it's low, but I can also understand it because this is one of those movies where I think everyone can acknowledge that everyone brings their A game. The direction, the writing, the acting is all top notch. And I think everybody, except for the two reviews we read today, really does see this as a funny movie. But it depends on how much you like comedies. I can understand someone giving this a seven. I can also understand someone giving this a 10. And so when I came out of my first viewing of this movie... I was like, you know, I don't know if I'd give it a perfect 10, but I'd definitely give it a 9.5. And I watched it again last night in preparation for this. And even then I was like, maybe I'd give it a nine. So I understand how scores can be all over the place. I think for me right now, I will say this is a nearly perfect movie. I think it's going to grow on me even more over the years. But right now I'm going to settle at a nine out of 10. I'm going to give it the exact same score, Bob. I think that 9 out of 10 is perfect. There are little things here and there throughout the movie that might not be perfectly done or they might miss a beat here or there. But overall, this is this is pretty close to being a perfect movie. And it, it's it's just brilliant in its writing and its direction and its pacing. I was very impressed with this movie, and I am going to give it a 9 out of 10. Well, there you have it. We both give it 9, so that makes our average really easy to figure out. But we want to hear what you have to say. So please, get on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Brad, where can they find us? At Film Whiskey. Or you could give us a call. Leave a voicemail on our call-in line. Brad, do you remember the number? 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we're going to be kicking off four straight weeks where we watch films from what is widely regarded as the greatest year in cinema history, 1939. And we're going to start off with Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. 
For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. at Robots Radio get a lot of questions from people who are interested in starting their own podcasts about how they can start, how they can grow their audiences, how they can create good content, even what microphone to use and what software to use, things like that. Well, we're changing things up at Robots Roundtable to talk and share about the things that we've learned, the things that work and the things that don't. We're sharing with you our actual real-world experience. How can you launch a show like the Fallout Lorecast and get as many listeners as we did early on and rock it to the top of the charts on Apple Podcasts? How do you create a show in such a crowded marketplace as it is today, as opposed to 10 years ago? We're getting together every week to share our answers with you. Just look up The Podcast Professor. A Robots Roundtable with the hosts from Robots Radio.